Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to revisit one of my favorite food subjects, and that is the science of fermentation. We're talking about bread, cheese, wine, and all the delicious ways that they can pair together. Our guest today is Katie Quinn. She is the author of a new book entitled Cheese, Wine, and Bread, which takes a deep dive into how each product is made from the stage of harvest through fermentation and to that enjoyment of the final product. Katie has appeared on NBC's Today um, as a contestant on the Food Network's Chopped and as a judge on Beat Bobby Flay. Katie also has a YouTube channel called Q Katie, where she posts food and travel videos. And she's also the host of her own podcast, which is called Keep It Quirky. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Katie. It's really great to meet you. Hi, Alexandra. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. Great. And tell us, where are you dialing in from today? I am calling from Italy, from southern Italy, from the region of Puglia. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. Well, yeah, no complaints over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm like, it, it's springtime here in Atlanta, but I, I think not quite as beautiful as southern Italy still. <laughs> <laughs> you have it pretty good in Atlanta too, though, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into the book. First of all, huge congratulations. It's really a beautiful work. And it looks like you got to have a lot of fun and adventure while also traveling and undertaking research for the book. So why don't we start there? Tell us about how did you get into this? Yeah. So well, first of all, thank you so much. I, um, I, this book is, is everything I ever dreamed that it could be when I first had this idea. And so basically... So the book is called Cheese, Wine, and Bread, right? And these are my three favorite things. And I think it was realizing that these are all fermented items that like a little light bulb went off. And I was working, um, I was a cheesemonger in London at Neil's Yard Dairy in London. And is, is that an actual title? Cheesemonger? Is that the yes. job title? Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. It is. Yeah. And um, so I was cheesemongering. There's the verb. <laughs> and um, and was just like so enthralled by everything I was learning about this item that I'd always said, oh, I love cheese, but then was like getting more of a sense of what it is and what is quality cheese and why, you know, just all of those intricacies. And this is when the light bulb went off, cheese, wine, and bread. Oh, whoa. And so that caused me to explore further and go and make cheese in rural England, which then led to me making wine on vineyards in Italy, which then led me to working at boulangeries in France. So you're right. It was quite the adventure when you use that word to describe <laughs> um, this book, uh, the writing of it, and hopefully the experience that, that readers have reading it too. That's great. Well, let's dig into the science, um, starting with cheese. I think it's amazing that you can have something so simple, just milk. Now, I know we have different sources of milk that can alter the flavor. Um, but starting just with milk, how does the magic happen? Like, how do we actually get cheese from that starting material? So milk, which is, yeah, as you say, the magic ingredient, basically um, rennet or lactic acid is added to it and it causes it to split into curds and whey, which we've all heard about at least through Little Miss Muffet. Um, and then once milk 
is split into Kurds and Way, that's when the Kurds are what we're looking at, and the Kurds is uh, is what will become cheese. Awesome. And there and there are just like endless, endless decisions that a cheesemaker has to make, right? Because, okay, if all milk or sorry, all cheese starts as milk, this is of course like not taking into account like vegan cheese and and things mm -hmm. like that, right? So kind of traditional definition of cheese. Um, if that all begins as milk, how the heck do we have like blue, right? How do we have blue cheeses? How do we have brie? How do we have these stinky, sticky washed rind cheeses, right? Like, so that is all the, the countless decisions that a cheesemaker makes every step of the way from the animal, from when to when to add the rennet if they want to add rennet or if it's just a lactic acid bacteria cheese mm. um if they want to backslop which is the oh so sexy term for using the <laughs> for using the um whey from the previous day which has these bacteria in it backslopping that way into that day's milk to then um separate the milk the following day so it's from that initial stage of um, separating the milk and then all of the decisions after, endless things can happen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually a lot of complex, you know, food microbiology and chemistry that's happening um, at yeah. these stages. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you can tell by uh, just me thus far and in talking with me thus far, but like, I'm not really a science person. But fermentation grabbed me and grabbed my interest in a way, mm -hmm. like fermentation is so, I think that the thing that's so incredible about it is that it is a transformation. It's mm -hmm. almost like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Like it's the same thing, but it's not the same thing. It is different. Like cheese is not milk. They are two completely different things, but one comes from the other. One is kind of born of the other. And so I think it's that transformation that captured my imagination, really mm -hmm. made me interested in science, possibly for the first time in my life, <laughs> um, and just and just really led me to go down the rabbit hole. And, and you know, in the book, the readers really learn with me. Because mm -hmm. I did not know anything about this. I really didn't about cheese, wine, or bread. And so I think I was able to write about these things from a place of I'm the student and be a student right along with me. And now, you know, years later, I feel confident, able to speak about this stuff. But um, it's really like not a, I'm a professor telling you how fermentation works. It's like, yo, 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 check this out. Like, check out what I just learned about fermentation. That's awesome. <laughs> and I've heard enough other of your um, interviews, your fantastic interviews, that uh, I'm like, some of the guests you have on, I'm like, oh, they're really <laughs> smart. Like, oh, they could, they could walk around me like in circles talking about talking about some of this stuff. So, um, but none yeah. of them has the title of cheesemonger. <laughs> yeah. You're the first, you're the I'm first the at first. that. Yes. And tell us like, what, 
what makes a cheese like the I love the butterfly analogy like what makes the cheese or a cheese like the most beautiful butterfly like what are the key characteristics that you look for when you're trying to grade a cheese I mean I'm imagining there's a whole like continuum of possibilities that are yeah. there. Yeah. So are you yeah. thinking like as a cheesemaker or as a cheesemonger slash a, an eater, someone trying to, someone eating a cheese? Like how do you identify maybe, a butterfly? Maybe, maybe let's start with the cheese eater because I think that's what the audience would want to know. It's like, how do yeah. we as consumers of cheese know if we've yes. got something good or not? Yes. I love this question. Partially because in a way there's no wrong answer because it is all obviously mm -hmm. very subjective. However, I would say to look, so the thing with artisanally made cheeses, which is a lot of what my book focuses on, right? I'm not talking about craft cheeses. Um, talking about cheeses made traditionally at farmhouses, like that's where I worked, that's where I made goat cheese was at this farmhouse in rural Somerset in, in England. And so that that's my focus. And these cheeses change by the day, they change with time. One wheel of cheese will not be the exact same as the next wheel of cheese because that is fermentation. Like that's what, the, fermentation is taking into account environment, all mm -hmm. of the different things in it. And okay, basically the cheeses at the grocery store are made for consistency, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So everything about it is very controlled and it is so that your cheese will taste exactly as it did the last time you got it because mm -hmm. that, they're trying to sell that product. I get that. But a really, really quality farmhouse cheese is so nuanced. It's really, it's really a thing of beauty. And I, and I bring up the change because I think a lot can be learned about what you like. So if if eating cheese, if that's a subjective, if that is a subjective experience, then you need to educate your taste buds. And that's what I did when I was cheesemongering at Neil's Yard Dairy. I tasted these same cheeses day in and day out, and I was encouraged to do so. I wasn't just like <laughs> nabbing bits. That's a great job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but, and I tasted these really subtle differences from day to day, from month to month, from cheese wheel to cheese wheel. And that made me appreciate the seasons, what the cows or goats or sheep were eating and how that affected the cheese. So to go back to, so I know this is kind of a, a long winded way of answering your question, but to appreciate cheese Part of it's just opinion. It's subjective. We like certain things. We don't like certain things. The other part of it is actually educating our taste buds. What are you tasting? And then, you know, to place a value on what you're tasting and to place a value on the fact that it's not the same every time because you know why it's not the same every time. That's awesome. Yeah, because I think you're right. It's there's like there's the terroir. There's yes. the you know, the, the, the age of the grass that the, the animals are grazing on and yeah. the amount of time that the microbes sit in the, in the milk and then the aging process. And yeah, it, it, it is, it's just fascinating how it can transform into so many different um, products. Have, oh, yeah. have, 
Have you ever um, encountered a cheese you really detested? <laughs> oh, I really detested. Oh, man. I don't think I've ever spit out a cheese. <laughs> but I will say, so I, um, I was asked to be a judge at the World Cheese Awards in Bergamo, Italy. Um, and this is something I write about in the book. And I, I judged like, like, oh my gosh, 30, I think 30 different cheeses in a span of like two hours, maybe three hours. So 30 cheeses back to back tasting and judging. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and it ran the gamut of like really delicious cheeses. Actually, one of the cheeses I tasted ended up being the grand champion of the entire. So, the, okay. Okay. This is like a little, little tangent, but the world cheese awards is this crazy like reunion of cheese lovers and there were thousands of people there um only eight final judges but i was one of like 500 initial judges so there are 500 oh. cheese lovers asking <laughs> yeah so when i say I was i was a judge i was like actually not very special because there were hundreds of people invited to taste these different cheeses 3000 cheeses to be tasted, right? So each, so the judges, the initial judges were put into groups of three. So it's so two, two guys and we are to taste these 30 cheeses and we have to rate them on we like how it looks, appearance, taste, texture, um, kind of all of the obvious things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we had to um, give them a number. And then the top rated one went on to the next round. And so then there were only 80 from those 3000 that made it to the top, to the next round. And then a new group of judges came in and judged those. And then it makes it to the final eight. And then though that is the grand jury. Okay. So one of the, the cheeses that I tasted of that initial 3000 ended up being the winner wow. of the entire thing. That's a lucky break for you guys. Yeah. yeah, that's, a, yeah that's a lucky break. <laughs> it was this delicious blue cheese from Oregon, from Rogue River Creamery. Mm -hmm. um, it was amazing. But so th to give you a sense of the um, array of cheeses on this table, one of them was the winner, and then others were literally string cheese. Literally string cheese. Like, why would anyone even, like, want this to be judged in this kind of a competition? But anyway, I bring up the the kind of levels of cheese that I've tasted because comparatively, on this table, I was like, why did I even waste putting this this stuff that's, like, clearly just not very good? Why did I even waste putting that in my mouth? So no, I've never tasted a cheese that I hate, but that came pretty close when it's just like seeing it next to such incredible pieces of art, really. Wow. Yeah. I like, give me more of that. I need a little bit more just to make that final decision. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Well, okay. So we have huge variety within cheese. And then the next part in your book, you talk about the travel to Italy yeah. and wine. 
And there's such diversity, obviously, in different vintages and wines. What can you tell us about this journey to understand winemaking? What were the big takeaways that you that you gained? Oh, my! I learned that Italy is actually the worst country to try to master wine because there are thousands of indigenous grape varieties here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you think of grapes, you think of Merlot or like a really popular one in Italy is Sangiovese, mm-hmm. right? There are so many that um, it is a, if you ask anyone in the wine industry, they'll be like, why did you set out to learn about wine <laughs> in Italy of all places? And I was like, that's because I was clueless. And I, it's, so the way it started was that I have like a friend of a friend whose parents own a vineyard in Northern Italy. And so I was like, oh, can I learn? (laughs) Can I come and learn from you guys? That's really what kicked it off. It was super happenstance. If I knew, if I had some connection to winemakers in France, I would have started there. But what I learned was, again, how many decisions a winemaker has to make. So if you start in the vineyard, indigenous yeasts, grow on grape skins. And a lot of people probably know how grape juice becomes wine. Yeast eats the sugar in the grape juice and and alcohol and carbon dioxide come from that. Mm-hmm. And, and so this yeast, if starting at the most basic level of like, what is wine? The elements, the few elements to make wine. Yeast, well, that's something that can be used and kind of cultivated from the vineyard, or it's an element that can be added in the cellar. Mm. So straight off the bat, to literally make this product, the winemaker has a decision. The winemaker has a decision about a lot of stuff in the vineyard, about if they're going to use any chemicals, if they're going to use copper. Uh, I mean, the decision-making is, um, it starts right off the bat. And then when you get into the cellar, you have to decide what kind of wine do you want to make? So you have the variety of grape, which will set you off on a certain path. Mm-hmm. But just like with cheese, where it's like, well, how much salt do I want to add? How much whey do I want to drain? Do I want this to age? Do I want, you know, there's just endless, endless questions to ask yourself. Same thing with wine. Well, do I want this to ferment in a barrel, in a wooden barrel, in an oak barrel, in a new oak or old oak barrel? Or how about a steel tank? I mean, endless, endless, endless decisions. Um, yeah, and just, yeah, I mean, it, it is so, um, there's so much that I feel like you have to like reel me in or I can just keep yeah. talking about like the grape skins and how like, you know, maceration and like, I mean, no, as you're speaking, I can just mentally visualize almost like a mind map where you have the starting material, all these different trees that shoot off along the way, depending on which fork in the path you choose, right? Yes. So I love that you bring up that visual of a mind map because I actually made mind maps for myself when I was writing this book because I was so, I was like, there's so much here and what do I write about and how... How do I prioritize? Because, okay, yes, I, I I wrote about kind of like the broad overview of these things. 
but there, there are stories here as well. And there are people. And so that's what I kind of let direct me in terms of the things that I went deeper into. Um, because otherwise if I like, it would just be impossible to go deep into everything because then it would be an encyclopedia of cheese, wine and bread. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The storytelling is an important component, um, of, of any great book. That's, that's so important. Um, well, as I'm thinking about the differences in decision points, I guess one major decision point has to do with the yeast, you know, I mean, they're really what's driving the fermentation. So can you tell us a bit about like, why might a winemaker not want to use the native yeast that's already found on the grape? Like, why would they want to add uh, another kind of pre-formulated yeast? Um, are there advantages or pros or cons on those yeah. two sides? So basically, when you choose to add yeast, you are giving yourself consistency, consistency of fermentation. You know, you, you are controlling everything in the process, right? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like choosing to add yeast. Um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the scientific name of it to your bread. Okay. And it's mm -hmm. that same strain of yeast that's used to be added to, to wine and, um, or, rather to the grape juice to make wine. wine. Mm -hmm. It's, I would compare that decision to, or a bread baker could use sourdough. It's mm -hmm. a little, maybe, maybe not as predictable, maybe a little harder to work with. Maybe you have to be a little more attuned to what's going on in the weather that day, or just, there are just more variables. Mm -hmm. As a producer, as a wine producer or a baker, you're taking on more risks if you choose that route. So that's kind of the big, that's kind of the big difference. Um, are you familiar with kind of conventional wine versus natural wine? Maybe I shouldn't even say natural, yeah. or, sorry, but there's a lot of yeah. terminology. Well, and like you see on labels about whether or not sulfites have been added, like what is, mm -hmm. how, how does all the, the labeling work yeah. with wine? What does that actually mean? Yeah. Okay. Dude, it is super, <laughs> it is super complex. Um, and a lot of wine labels are, are marketing essentially. Mm -hmm. I, I was amazed when I first really realized there's all kinds of stuff on a wine label. You know, what's not on a wine label an ingredients list. So there's, yeah. So it will usually say sulfites added or no sulfites added, but that mm -hmm. is the only ingredient that is ever mentioned. I think a lot of people assume, oh yeah, it's grapes. It's fermented grapes, but so much can be added beyond the, beyond yeast, obviously in the cellar, there are actually 72 legal additives what? to add. Yes. Wow. Yes. And there's no ingredients list. So we don't even know half the time what we're, what we're drinking really. Um, and these are all things added to affect, um, affect taste, you know, Oh, I want a little more oakiness and you know, you don't need to keep it in that oak barrel for longer. If you can just add a little, little taste differences, oh, wow. um, you can, you can add tannins, mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're found in like the oak bark. Those are, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. And exactly. It's found 
like tannins, you get those from the stems and seeds and skins of a grape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you can just add this like liquid magic. Um, so, so basically labels, going back to your question, my biggest takeaway with labels is that they don't actually tell you very much. Sometimes labels don't even tell you the grape that the wine was made from. So it's a tricky place to be as a consumer. And my big takeaway is to kind of know, to know the producer where you're getting the wine from. That's obviously not always possible, not for me or anyone else. Mm -hmm. So second best to trust someone who know who does know about the wine. So if you have a, if you have a wine shop where, you know, form a relationship, just like when you go to the cheese shop and you talk to the cheesemonger who can tell you about their cheeses because they are obsessed with these cheeses and they know everything about the cheeses and they want to share that information with you. The same goes for people who work at a wine shop. They love wine and they know a lot. So ask them, ask them about it. Ask them about who the producers are, how they're making the wine. And if it's done in a way that's sustainable for the planet, and if it's done in a way that takes human health into consideration, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things, um, there are a lot of questions to ask. And I, and I hope that, I hope that labels become a little more transparent in the future. Yeah. Well, what you just mentioned brought up this other idea I had in my head, and that's like about blending of different grapes. Like, yeah. is that very common in the wine industry that they will take, you know, different types of grapes and blend them together to make their wines? Yes. Yeah. Very, very much so. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I kind of love this because it's a way of like pairing up uh, different characteristics of grapes, right? So where I'm living now in Southern Puglia, the this area is really known for its red wines and these red wine grapes that are grown here, Primitivo, Negro Amaro. They're mm -hmm. these bold, very bold. Rich, yeah. Yes. Yes. Very mm -hmm. bold red wines. And they can be blended really beautifully with a lighter bodied red with like a really fruity, maybe kind of acidic red wine. Blending those two together, you've got just like a super drinkable wine that's like going to be perfect for your pizza night. That's awesome. So I, before we got on the show taping, I was telling you that um, my husband's family is from Basilicata and the yes. Volterre region, and they grow a special variety there. I don't know if you've tasted this yet, but it's called Alianico, which is very <gasps> kind of bold, like like the Primitivo in some ways. Yes. It's on that volcanic soil, and it's so yes. characteristic. And it, it's hard to find in the U.S. Like I found some like on wine.com and I, but then it was actually from Alianico grapes, but it was being made in a different province. And yeah. this gets confusing also is like, what does yeah. DOC mean on like a good Italian wine label? What is that all about? Oh man. So, okay. I, and I write about this too. It, so DOC is, is the Italian um, way of saying like, protected designation of origin, a PDO. It stands for Denominazione Origine Controle. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, considering I live in Italy, I should probably have uh, done that with a better accent. But <laughs> basically, it, it is a way of verifying and certifying that a wine known for a certain grape or 
coming from a certain region, that those all match up, basically. It's the same thing as with champagne, which comes from the champagne, comes from Champagne, France. So there's a region in France called Champagne. And that's right. (laughs) And and, and in order to be called champagne, it needs to come from champagne. It can be made using the champagne method. It can be uh, the secondary fermentation to get those bubbles in it that we know and love in champagne. Can that same method can be done elsewhere, but it can't be called champagne if it's not from champagne. So the same goes to follow our Prosecco or to follow our bubbly champagne kind of wines mm-hmm. thought the same goes for Prosecco in it has to be from just a handful of areas in Northern Italy made in a specific way. It's the tank method in order to be called Prosecco. Prosecco. Okay. Yeah. And so, but I love that, like that you brought up that you and your husband love this wine from where he's from and that you pretty much can't find it in the States. And that has that has happened to me so much while I was researching this book because I would fall in love with a grape like Pignolo, this Pignolo, which is a wonderful red um, red wine grape. It's kind of like Nebbiolo, uh-huh. um, which is more common, and you can get that other places. But I fell in love with Pignolo, and then I couldn't find it anywhere. I was I was living in London when I was researching the book. I went back to London, couldn't find it anywhere went back to the States to visit family, couldn't find it anywhere. It's like, whoa, I have to be in Italy. And I probably have to be in this pretty specific region of Italy to get this kind of wine. Yeah. No, I've, I've had some, I haven't had Pignolo yet, but I've definitely had some nice Nebbiolos and Barolos up in yes. Turin. Oh yeah. You're making me want to hop on a plane right now. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm looking at the time over here in Italy. I'm like, it's about time for me to, I could, I could crap open a bottle right now. That's great. <laughs> well, let's, let's take one more stop, uh, before that. And let's, let's pop over to where you did your bread research. Cause I want to make sure we fit that into to make the full trifecta to cover the, the, the scope trifecta. of the book. Yeah. So what, you know, how did you dive into bread and bread making? So it actually first began when I had, I, I got to meet Sonia Poilen, who is the owner of the famed Poilen Bakery in Paris. Mm-hmm. So her gr- grandfather started this bakery um, around World War One, and it is it is world renowned, so world renowned that Robert De Niro has loaves flown from Paris to <laughs> him. I mean, this is wow. this kind of bread. We have and something in common with with De Niro. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting for that to happen. Oh, me too. So, but anyway, so, so, so needless to say, this bread is is amazing. And yeah. he was meeting Apollonia, who has such um such pride in it in the heritage, her family heritage with this bread. And the thing that differentiates it is that it is sourdough and it has remained sourdough through all of these generations as added yeast and quick rise bread, quick quick bread, like the kind of bread that you might think of on the grocery store shelves wrapped in plastic that has become the norm. Mm. Poilen is kind of the exact opposite of that. 
they are they make these beautiful hard crust soft fluffy interior all natural fermentation and so it was when i was talking to her and she kind of was really digging into the grains and the origin of grains that are then you you know then become flour that becomes mm -hmm. bread and it was realizing how deep that goes and and how much there would be to explore you know people think of france and they think incredible bread that's true to a certain extent, but there's crappy bread in, in Paris and in France, just like there is anywhere. Um, and I was like, I want to learn more about this. I want to learn what makes good bread and what makes not good bread. And I want to learn how French culture is evolving. Um, so, so basically I started, uh, reaching out to boulangeries all around Paris and was like, can I bake with you? Can I bake with you? And, and some places let me in. I, I trained with this incredible guy who calls himself the barefoot bake. Uh, sorry. Well, he is the barefoot baker, but he calls himself a peasant farmer mm -hmm. because he lives in Brittany in Northern France and he grows his own wheat. Oh, he grows wow. his own grain mills it and then bakes bread with it and feeds his community that way. So yeah, so there was just so much there and, and I just got my hands dirty and um, I haven't gotten my hands out of the sourdough since, since then. And I didn't make sourdough before that. So it was really, it was pretty life-changing actually. Like it affected the day-to-day -day of my life. Yeah, because you have to care for your sourdough. It's like a little creature that you have yeah. in your kitchen. Yeah. Hit the nail on the head. It's like a little pet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so, great. Yeah. And they make they make great gifts. You have like the lineages yeah. of sourdoughs. Yeah. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. And then, you know, I think that the other major element of the book, um, which absolutely plays a role in why I was driven to do each of these things and explore cheese, wine, and bread as I did is really like my, the personal element of it, mm -hmm. which I was really unsure at first how much I wanted to share. It's like, this isn't a memoir it, and it's, and it's not a memoir, but I was like, how much of myself do I want to put in this? And I ended up sharing quite a bit with the purpose of other people being able to put themselves in my shoes and go through this adventure with me and understand that just as my life at the time was really fermenting, I was going through some transitions and it was sometimes difficult as life sometimes is. And it was realizing that, whoa, Fermentation, everything I'm learning about is a mirror of what I'm going through. So fermentation, there are like weird, stinky, sticky, bubbly phases of fermentation, but you just have to be patient. Fermentation takes time. Mm -hmm. And that is the ingredient in fermentation that often is not acknowledged, but it is possibly the key ingredient. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You can't rush it. And so I felt like I learned so much about myself and like as a human while I wrote this or while I was researching this book. So in the writing of it, it was like, uh, I, I have to share this part of it too. That's great. No, I think that's a fabulous place um, to end because I don't know if you could say it any better about 
you know, fermentation and the parallels with transitions in life, appreciation for where food comes from and the secret ingredient of time to get that perfect final product. Yes. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Katie, for coming on the show. Um, where can the audience find you online um, to find your book and uh, info about your podcast and YouTube channel? Yeah. So uh, my website is just katie-quinn.com, but you can follow me on Instagram at qkatie. You can check out my YouTube channel just called qkatie. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was great meeting you. So nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this episode and all of our others at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also check out video recordings of episodes at our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany. And lastly, I want to give a big shout out to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth from Co-Conspiracy Entertainment for producing this excellent show. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.